Greetings, Tom Elser at the BizDoc, and we're here, and I hope I will leave you better than I found you in roughly the next hour with some things we got to look at. I am here with Kai Lode and Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, pulling charts, pulling research, pulling everything while we're talking. Uh, good to see you, Kellyanne. How are you? Good. How are you? Kai, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited but to play We have topics. got a list of things, and I think they're, they're going to like this. There's going to be a lot of what's in it for you, what can you do, and thank you so much for the questions that keep coming during the week about how it applies to your business, whether you're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, you're a leader in an organization somewhere. We're here for you to help you go further with what we bring to you and synthesize it a little bit. Um, what do we got? So today, we got market stats. First of all, we're going to cover 56% of unicorns. That's a business, that's a startup within two to three years that achieves a billion dollar valuation. We're going to talk about 56% led by U.S. citizens. 40. 56 are. Yeah, but led by U.S. citizens. 54% are unicorns, led by U.S. citizens, and 46% are immigrants. And then I'm going to go take a math class after this because <laughs> usually that kind of stuff has to add up to 100. What else we got? Shopify cut its workforce by 10% last year, but then this year they're cutting meetings too. So oh, that would be interesting. interesting. I want to hear about that. Yeah. It says, then how quickly should founders respond to emails? We talked to one of the greatest investors and he gave us some feedback about how his unicorns, billion dollar investments, how fast those CEOs respond to him. We have that. Next up, Google and people losing perks and uh, maybe possibly Google losing its mojo. So oh we'll see. no, so I don't get a personal chef at Google anymore Ping to write pong. two lines of code a day. Bean bags. <laughs> That's sad. And then lastly, uh, M&A, is M&A picking up? Mergers and acquisition activity. The economy's been remarkably resilient. We, we haven't seen the recession, we thought, but there's only about uh, seven big stocks that are really pulling the S&P 500 along. But nonetheless, M&A um, is starting to pick up, which is usually, what do they call that? When the little green shoots start to show up in the economy, saying that coming up. And then we're also gonna have a couple questions from you that we will yep. answer on the fly. So, Kai, let's jump into unicorns. You were digging this up. Absolutely. Tell me about what you got here, and let's run. We have a chart here showing where are the other 44% of unicorns from, and let's dive into why is that? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. This was a chart we were looking at over the weekend here uh, where you can see that 56% uh, of uh, startup founders, specifically unicorn startup founders, are U.S.-born, and then... 44 being non-US born, which is pretty interesting because it's almost 50-50. Uh, and I'd consider that obviously US born within the US, the number should have been a lot higher, one would think. Um, but what we see here, top 10 countries, you have India on the top by, with 90, 90 founders. Uh, Israel, almost half of that, 52, which is impressive for their population as well. And then from there, Canada, uh, we have China, Germany, France, Russia, Taiwan, Ukraine, so like all in all, you have 500 um, unicorns and then 1,078 founders. So this is, this is some pretty, pretty interesting stuff. What's your take on this, Tom? Well, my take is, first of all, homeland Canada, the homeland of my great-grandparents, Canada, pulling up number three. You know, I guess it was too cold, so they came here to build their company or, or something like that. So, yeah. But what's interesting, India doesn't surprise me. Um, the, yeah, the Indian... Technical College over there, it is as meaningful as MIT, and a lot of people um, come over here on visas, you know, getting internships, or went to MIT, yep. so 
India does not surprise me. No. There is a tremendous amount of technical talent there, and they are hungry. And there's a family thing I think we're going to talk about in a minute, that a cultural thing about aspiring to get to the next level. Um, and so that didn't surprise me. Israel doesn't surprise me. It may surprise a lot of you, a small country like Israel, but I read a book, and Kellyanne, let's put a link to this book in the comment section. It's called Startup Nation. And if you don't know about Startup Nation, if you haven't read the book, it is an amazing book talking about how India you know, has its leadership, China has its leadership, Taiwan has its leadership, but this little tiny country, Israel, is up there constantly in the top five of new unicorns, security software, and you know CEOs. And you're gonna read in that book, Startup Nation, find out Startup exactly Nation. why that is. Um, a tremendous, a cradle of, uh, there's a university here in the United States, uh, Miami of Ohio, it's known as the Cradle of Coaches. Don Shula and a lot of other people there, they said some of the great, <coughs> excuse me, football coaches came out of there. Well, guess what? You know, Israel is increasingly being known as the Cradle of CEOs and on an advanced basis compared to the other countries. But what's interesting is I think there's, there's a cultural side to this, isn't there? It's no. more than just, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, there's, there's, there's something else going on here. For sure, and I think that uh, a big part in terms of being a founder or being somebody who starts a company is that coming as an immigrant, whether you're first generation, the one immigrating, or being born to immigrants, because uh, that'd be an interesting stat too in terms of like the US born ones, how many of those are born from immigrants too? Because I don't think this chart really goes into that. But I think that inherently, if you're an immigrant, you're, you already know that, okay, where I'm living doesn't work for what I'm trying to do. And you know that you're kind of seeing that I need to make an adjustment and really move out of this place to put myself in a better place for more opportunity, better uh, jobs, whatever kind of what have you on that end. So I think that that inherently kind of pushes you more towards entrepreneurship because you've already done that once. And then now it would just be doing that in the marketplace as opposed to having relocated yourself across the country, across the world in many situations as well. Yeah, I went, to, uh, I went to school in uh, California. Went to my undergrad in Los Angeles, California, uh, and um, got my, I went to Pepperdine, got my MBA at Pepperdine. And there's tremendous amount of diversity there. There's you know, the Korean community downtown, there's the Japanese community downtown. I got to learn a lot about, you know, from you know, classmates and stuff, and they would say, you know, I'm Nisei or Sansei. And those are the two words that the Japanese use to describe first generation immigrants, second generation okay. immigrants. Sansei meant you were born here, yep. two parents who immigrated, and Nisei was the parents immigrated. And what they indicated, they said, look, if you immigrate here to start a country, to start a country, company, to start company. a company, you immigrate from some company to start here, what you're saying is you're in the wrong place. Mm. I'm going to the United States because wherever I am is the wrong place. I'm trapped in a caste system yep. in India. No criticism here, it's not a racial comment, not a cultural comment, but they would say, look, I'm in a caste system and culturally in India, mm. I come over here, go to MIT, get a degree, I can do anything in the United yep. States. And so um, that's first generation. So first generation is, hey, I'm in the wrong place. And so I'm coming to the United States to, to have all this opportunity, venture capital, all the universities and stuff, and I'm gonna go build something on the foundations of liberty, freedom, and free enterprise and capitalism. Great. Then, if you were born to them, and this is where my classmates in um, Southern California that were Japanese would say, listen, my parents emphasized to me, 
you know, Japan's made a huge comeback. It's really tremendous. It's all like this. But the reason we're here is for these reasons. Mm -hmm. And so it was you would get from your parents, hey, the reason we're here is you've got great opportunity. And the so that was very interesting where first generation says, I'm in the wrong place, so I'm going to come here. Or I'm not in an optimal place. There's a better opportunity here. And then the second generation is, that's all I heard from my parents, is, yeah, hey, we no, came here because there was a better opportunity. Ab absolutely. I think the other thing, too, which uh, Patrick B. David covered in his video about uh, raising kids and with Indians and how they raise their kids, with a lot of them becoming successful, is I think just the way that they're brought up and the cohesiveness units, uh, the cohesive unit in terms of the family, but then also that allows you to take risks in other places of your life, where then starting a company might not be as big of a risk if you kind of have that financial stability within the family or, or being able to have other people that can take care of you in that initial phase of building up a company where you kind of have to put all your energy into that as opposed to worrying about kind of stuff on the home front on that end. Yep, and I, I, I can't say enough about, you know, the work ethic of first generation, second generation immigrants in the United States. And frequently they had different work ethics that were much stronger and more dedicated than you know the US citizens. Mm. By the way, US citizens of any background, any race, any background, any culture, those that have been here two, three, four generations had assimilated themselves into, you know, sometimes American laziness. Not all Americans were lazy, but sometimes there was, but that was lacking in the immigrants. The immigrants here, I've got an opportunity, I want to do this, I want to drive and I'm gonna do it. And I'll tell you, um, there are, uh, and I, you know what, I, I just remembered something, and this is really touching, is I had the opportunity at a company I was with in uh, you know, 2000, 2004. It was really, you know, we had a, a collection of um, Indian Americans, and there was a, a female engineer who unfortunately uh, perished in a car accident here in the United States. Her and her boyfriend were driving to Las Vegas, not wearing a seatbelt, something happened you know, at night with an, other vehicles had an accident. They got pulled up into it, and, and unfortunately, she was ejected from the vehicle and perished. And I got to see, you know, the, how the community came together and basically how we were able to reach out to her parents in India and do things. And I saw deep appreciation for the opportunity of America and also a deep connection to the cultural traditions and norms. And they educated me for what we needed to do at that hour. And so, and there was such deep appreciation for the opportunity she had here that came back from her parents. Um, and, and at this hour of loss, just talking about how much their daughter loved going to school here and loved her career and what she was hatching. And so, um, you, and the, the dedication that I would see out of people was, you know, more prevalent than in Americans. Again, Americans of any, any race and background, multi-generation Americans, there's just that little bit more spark, that little more dedication, that little more, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna, I'm gonna step on the gas here, so. I have a question for you. Do you think in terms of in many ways, they say that you, the U.S. is the, the nation of immigrants. Like, uh, people have come here, the great melting pot, and stuff like that. Do you think there's a correlation with the rise and success of the United States in correlation with immigration kind of being the main driver that has come now throughout the last 150, 200 years? Yeah, let's, go take, let's go take a look at it. Who are, the, who are the seven companies that are known as the Magnificent Seven right now that are driving the S&P 500? Apple. Amazon, Google. Hang on, Google. Yep. Led by 
uh, uh, Alphabet. Yes. Yep. Yes. A lot of people are upset with him. Yep. But Indian American. Yep. Uh, you have obviously Apple, which was founded by Steve Jobs. He's, you already said Apple. Yeah. We got um, Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft. Nadella. Yep. Indian American, right? Yep. Yep. And then you have uh, Amazon. Yep. And, and you had Netflix, Nvidia. Mm -hmm. You know, he's Taiwan, right? Yep. Yep. No, so it's uh, another second generation immigrant. I believe he's second generation. Mm -hmm. And so take a look at that. We look at the Magnificent Seven, and three out of the seven, I believe, are led by people whose parents weren't here, uh, let's call it 55 years ago, because I think mm -hmm. all those people are under 55 yep. years old. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And so my answer would be a screaming yes, that the um, that immigration policy that allowed people to come here in H-1Bs and then get green cards, work permits, and, and then become you know, dual citizens um, or full citizens, depending on the, the, the laws yep. in the various countries they're coming from. I think that diversity has absolutely driven, especially what's happened in tech mm -hmm. and, and innovation, absolutely. And I've had the privilege of working shoulder to shoulder with many of them um, and uh, you know, to just say, hey, listen, this guy of Canadian descent on my dad's side, he wants to saddle up with you and go ride on this, uh, on this journey. And it's, it's been a privilege. And so I, I think that's absolutely part of it. Now, something in America has that is uniquely American. We move on to meetings. Mm. Very American, right? It, what was it they say? That to, to err is human, but to really screw up, you need a meeting, right? So Sounds about accurate. So what is up with Shopify? Yeah, so Shopify, uh, this was, I believe last week, they had a memo uh, that, that was shared with the, with the media where they were taking a two-week hiatus from scheduling meetings, and then they were basically re-enrolling a policy where it was now expressing the price tag of meetings. Because obviously when you collectively bring people in, uh, you have just the math of it. You have the hourly wage of every person that's involved in the meeting. And then there's probably some more stuff you can add on it if you want a proper formula on that end. But what it came down to was how now employees can feel like almost empowered to say no to meetings there, um, which they were talking about could free up as much as 76,500 hours uh, in terms of that were already pre-scheduled meetings for a lot of people on that end. Yeah, and you know, when they start putting a price on your hour and doing things like this, you usually get really worried that the CEO is now CEO CFO is about to come walking down the, the hallway with an org chart that's got a red X over your name. Um, but what the, and there's there's some truth to that because it was less than a year ago I think they laid off 10% of their staff um, because of the um, e-commerce efficiencies and also they also they were also leveraging heavily during the pandemic era, believing that the uh, online movement would be a lot more. So this kind of came as a, like we saw with a lot of other tech companies where they had to cut back a little bit because they were too over leveraged on that end. Yep. And uh, Kelly, can you look up something for me? I think it's Amazon. It's called the two pizza rule for mm -hmm. meetings. If you could find that Amazon two pizza rule. So Jeff Bezos also had a very strong feeling about gathering people in the first place. And it was, I, I think he called it the two pizza rule. Yep. If she can find that, we'll take a look at that in a second. But this, I think, is very, very interesting. So this is Shopify saying, hey, you know what? You know, and here's BizDoc. Shopify is saying, you know, 
we're looking for ways to make everybody aware of the cost of the business. We've laid off people and we got to find other efficiencies. So they'd rather have you coding or talking to customers or doing what we call productive forward leaning activities rather than doing, you know, post activity assessments. Mm -hmm. So meetings can be planning, meetings can be assessments and meetings can be, you know, unnecessary. And what they're trying to squeeze out is we don't want too many of the meetings that are assessment. We can get reports and dashboards and we damn sure want to get rid of the meetings that are just part of, um, you know, it ends up bureaucracy. Well, we always have had a Monday meeting. That's why we're doing this. We always have it. I think the other You thing find the two pizza rule? I did. Okay. Can we pop that up? Is there like a short wiki or something? Ah, there it is. The two pizza rule of Jeff Bezos. And, um, and then here is, and there's a rebuttal in here from Peter Madden, who is uh, apparently a, a media executive, who says, <laughs> you know, and they better be damn small pizzas in my organization. <laughs> so the two pizza rule is Jeff Bezos in his early days of setting up Amazon established a rule that every internal team should be as small as it can be fed with two pizzas. The rule was not to control and cut down catering bills. Instead, it was aimed at efficiency and stability. So in other words, if there's more people in the room than can be fed with two pizzas for lunch, maybe you got too, too many people in the room and who's not talking or who's not necessary? And then Peter Madden saying, if you're working for me, those better be small pizzas. Know. You know, as he wants efficiency and to get it done. So yep. you gotta and appreciate I, and that. And I think the other part about this too is that when you look at the meetings and the size of it, that you have a lot of people that come into the meeting that aren't really needed, right? So they're you you're, you get a you get a meeting you get an invite from your boss and you're on it and it's like you kind of sit there and then maybe 15 minutes out of an hour meeting pertains to your area your department and your like tasks or whatever. So I think that in terms of looking at it in terms of how you can strategize it more, you could have just the the leaders of each department and then they kind of uh, push it down the chain for something that's more increased efficiency. I know you have a way of, of running meetings and structuring meetings. Yep, long ago, and I got this from Bill Esri Sr., who was the CEO of Sprint at the time. And Sprint was this very bureaucratic long distance company. And so, God bless Bill Esri Sr., not picking on you, Bill, and uh, picking on your memory at all. But what was interesting about this was that he always said, before you walk into that room, you better know PAL, P-A-L. Purpose, agenda, length. He wants to know who, who, is, who is in that meeting and why are they in that meeting and what's going on. Um, and so what is the purpose of this meeting? What is the agenda? What is the length? And the meeting can only be long enough to complete that purpose. Are we here to make a decision? Are we here to look at a result and then make tomorrow and then confirm tomorrow's action? You weren't allowed to go into a meeting and just talk about the result. If no one can send a report to you in email or you didn't see some dashboard, you can look at results that way. But if you're looking at results, making a decision to do to keep doing it tomorrow or do it differently, okay. But that's what it was. And so if you're running a small business, I and I highly, highly encourage you to take the one pizza rule nowadays and PAL, purpose, agenda, length. Why are you in that room? What is the agenda? How long should it be? And it should be only long enough to get to that. If it's a 15 minute meeting, it's a 15 minute meeting. You know, that's what it is. If it's gonna be a, a, an hour long work meeting and you're going through testing software code and talking about what it is, that's not a meeting, that's a work session. That's a team work, you know, environment there. And so that's what I feel. And so, you know, by the way, if you want more tips and more things, come to the vault. 
The vault's coming up on um, August 30th, September 2nd, down near Hollywood, Florida, right around the corner from um, Fort Lauderdale Airport, where this and more information for you to, to learn and apply more for your business. And so I'm just giving you a little tidbit there of my philosophy of meetings and what people have shared with me and how you and a small organization can cut your own bureaucracy. But if you want big picture and even more stuff, come see us at the vault in a couple weeks. Absolutely. But that's it. Then the other bane of bureaucracy that we often see people talk about is? Emails. Email. This is very interesting. Sam Altman. Do we know who Sam Altman is? He is the founder of a uh, very uh, unknown company that definitely hasn't been on the rise lately. I think it's called uh, ChatGPT. And before that, he was running Y Combinator, you know? Oh, and, I yep. didn't know that. And we hear that? Do you, have the, no. do you have Sam's picture in his bio? We can pop that up. People take a look at that, Kelly. Y Combinator. Yep. Sam Altman. Um, so he was running that. And what he's, he invested in a lot of companies over that. And through Y Combinator, and by the way, I did a case study on Y Combinator, so we'll put a link in the, uh, um, in the notes here. Kellyanne put a link in the notes to the BizDoc case study available from Valuetainment in the Valuetainment content library. So you can go check that out. But what Y Combinator did was an incubator accelerator. And <clears throat> Sam eventually came to an assessment. And he pulled and he did a bunch of assessments. He said, let's take a look at all the CEOs of the organizations in Y Combinator that have achieved X status, like what they used to call escape velocity. Escape velocity is you can launch a rocket into the sky and it can come back down to Earth. You can launch a rocket into orbit and see if it stays there, or you can launch a rocket to the moon or beyond, like distant, like satellites for deep space. That's called escape velocity, as you launch something to get beyond the Earth's gravity and get out. So he would look at what companies have achieved escape velocity. In other words, what ones have really grown and got to the point where they're gonna be on their own journey, they don't need the incubator anymore. And he did an assessment. How quickly did those CEOs respond to him? And he said, it was amazing. The ones that were the most successful, and do we have a picture of Sam and Y Combinator here? Let's pop this up. You'll instantly know because his face is all over the news. Yeah. There you go. But here he is, you know, on the future of AI and things like that. And also, um, and I think he was Stanford. Yeah. He's one of the Stanford yeah, Stanford guys. on the right. Education. Yep, exactly. And so he looked at it. And you ready for this? The higher performing companies in the Y Combinator portfolio versus the lower performing companies yep. in the portfolio. Guess who was responding quicker? Let's take a wild guess here and say the higher performing you are correct, Starbucks card for Kai. That's exactly right. And so it's very interesting, here's what you can do. If you run a company and you've got more than two or three on your staff and more than five million in, in revenue, run this test. Look at all your direct reports and have somebody go do a quick assessment in your email box, who responds to you quicker. And then look back at the ones that you would stack rank according to their last review or you know, how you're feeling about them right now, the last one-on-one -on -one you had with them where you gave them some performance feedback. The ones that are responding quicker that have, or, and by the way, responding quicker is a function of several things. How organized is their inbox? Do they take the time to make folders and to make rules so they can get the emails into buckets so they can see the more important emails first? Are they organized? And then second, do they have enough time in the day, how they manage their time and their people, that they have enough time to respond to you? So, talks about their own time management. And guess what? If they're organized, 
and they're organized, and they're organized, and they can respond to you, guess what? It's probably the people that are gonna come higher on your list. And you have an instant coaching opportunity with them. So whether you got 10 people, and you're running a t-shirt company in Berlin, you're running a tech company in Silicon Valley, you can apply this in your own business and at all kinds of businesses in between and immediately give people coaching because I'm too busy to get back to you, I got a lot going on. No, organize your inbox, organize your time better, delegate to your people better because I need you to be responding to me on strategic things. It's got nothing to do with micromanagement, it's got everything to do with urgency and business needs. And um, what do you think, no, do you think I, of Sam? Do you I, think he's being too hard on people? No, I think he's, I'm sure he has a point and obviously there's a level of urgency as well. And then the other part you were talking about, I was reading, I'm reading this book on workflows and automation and it's talking about, I was, I'm thinking here, it's going to go into softwares, this, then the other. So you're reading a book on workflow and automation? Yes. Um, and I thought initially this would go into like softwares and stuff like that. But in the beginning it starts a lot with, okay, what's the workflow of your day and like how do you kind of uh, set that up for success in terms of responding to things, sorting things to where what's urgent and high priority you need to do right away, what is urgent but low priority you need to schedule and then it talks about what what is neither urgent nor high priority you just need to try to get rid of it, what's urgent but not high priority could also be something that you try to delegate and stuff like that so it's very interesting mm -hmm. of how structuring and really looking at what moves the numbers forward. They were talking about in JotForm, which was the company uh, by, the, by the founder who wrote the book, uh, he talked about they had two metrics they measured for like the first 10 years. New signups and daily users. He said that yep. there's, there's a ton of other metrics you, they can look at, but he said these are the two most important. It's how many new people are we getting and then how many people are sticking on the platform. Everything else is kind of just noise. But those two were the driving measures. Yeah, financials of and profit will take care of itself if exactly. you're generating those and you're exactly. getting subscription revenue or ad revenue, whatever the, the business model underlying that. Yeah, so I think I think also, which which interestingly enough goes back to the whole meetings as well, is like that's another way of like, is this urgent, is it priority, and then what can be delegated, what can be offloaded and stuff like that. So between the urgency of knowing what the right tasks to work on are, and then also knowing what you don't need to worry about in terms of um, tasks is a huge, huge importance in, in terms of being... What's a, the name of the book? We'll put it in the uh, comments. Automate Your Workflow, I believe it, the, book, the name of the book is. I can check. So in other words, Kai, yep. a single guy in South Florida, is reading a book on workflow management in his spare time. Automate Your Busy Work is the book. Peter, it says... We need in the comment <laughs> section also to put your, put whatever dating site link you're using. Okay. Because if you're reading a book on workflow management in your spare time, while you've come back from uh, Norway, Vacation. celebrating your sister's MD, so yep. great thing in the company. But it's summer in Florida, and in his spare time, Kai is reading a book on workflow management. We need like a like a GoFundMe for like a dating budget. That's, so a, that's it, a high value man right there, ladies. Um, there we go. I'm open, I'm open for it. But no, I think, uh, I think, I mean, I need to know how to automate my busy work so I can focus more on that. Okay, right or, on. or something. Right on, we'll, we'll digress. So you need your mojo, and now let's talk about Google. Google apparently has lost a little mojo. Yep. Um, you were telling me about this. So over the last 12 months, there have been some, uh, there have been some noise coming out of Google, hasn't, yep. hasn't there? No, and absolutely. there certainly hasn't been new products coming out of Google. Um, you know, uh, Android is separate, 
the people who's driving the Android train right now? Really, Samsung with the with those phones. Those phones. Yep. Really, on a global basis, you know, and then you've got a lot of the, you know, the generic vanilla Android phones are all mm -hmm. over the United States, yep. India, and what have you. Um, to me, all over the world, in places like India, where they, I think in India they outnumber iPhones significantly. Mm. But interesting. Whatever it is, but anyway, Google has lost its mojo. Yep, it's lost uh, quite a few jobs as well in terms of the hyper growth. I think in 2020, 2020, 2021, they cut 218,000 jobs. Uh, so I think that not only are they seeing decrease in jobs, but also some of the perks. You want to talk about some of those? 218,000 jobs. <laughs> Good grief. That's like two and a third Super Bowls. Yeah. You take all the people in a Super Bowl stadium, let's say they all work for Google, and do that two and a third times, all those people have been, you know, Google no longer needs your services. Oh, no. No, no special lunch made by the private chef on my floor. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and not only did they cut the jobs, but also in terms of how it was communicated, because these were a lot of these were mass layoffs with semi-anonymous random emails coming in at the middle of the night or people showing up to office on Monday morning and their key card isn't working and then suddenly they're like, well, I guess, uh, what does this mean? And stuff like that, check your inbox. So I think that there's definitely a lot of cuts that have been done, but also the way that it's been done has been kind of staining a lot of the uh, employees that are there now as well. And you know what's really interesting is I remember a time uh, when, and by the way, this has application for you because if you have a competitor across town and he or she leading their or they or whomever they call themselves the individual or the bot leading the company across town is able to do a little bit more for their their team yep. than you are then they're going to be like the favorite place to go work whether that's a restaurant or a construction company whatever it is and Google used to be the place you would go to, and you would hear about in Silicon Valley that you would have tribal movement. You would have mm. people that were leaving, you know, Meta because Metaverse happened, and then things were happening, and then, you know, jobs were, you know, at risk, and people were like, "Well, I'm taking off out of Meta before I'm doing that," and they would go over to, they would go over to Google. Or they would go over to Twitter back when Twitter was hiring, and then maybe you saw how bloated it was, and Elon Musk laid off a bunch of people. But it used to be there's this tribal movement to go around Silicon Valley with the velocity of new product and the velocity of success. Yep. Um, and we used to see it, and it used to be a true story that at lunch you could go someplace where you knew a lot of meta people were. You would see somebody there and say, "Well, I, I think I'm ready to do it. really. What kind of what are you? Front end, back end engineer, full stack engineer, Python? What do you do?" Uh, says, well, I'm blah, 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 blah. Really? Great. Database? Oh, I love it. I mean, I used to be a DBA. Oh, fantastic. And so literally people would have meaningful conversations over lunch like that mm -hmm. by just sending a Slack to somebody or, a, a, excuse me, they, they wouldn't be sending Slacks. No. They'd be sending private texts. Yep. <laughs> you know, they'd be sending like Discord, my Discord, you know. Uh, Telegram. And Telegram, right? What's, and then WhatsApp they'd be gone. What's that? And, and Google used to be the number one destination. Hey, man, they got laundry thing. You go park in the parking garage. You get on a bike and you ride it over here to here. And then you drop, you walk in with the bag that had your employee number on it. Here's my laundry. Fluff and fold. Light starch hanger. Come back. Boom. Take them all home. Well, Google was doing all that to maximize the number of hours, but to also to provide, you know, a little bit more perks. Mm -hmm. These perks have been disappearing They've been disappearing like the extra multiples on the P.E. ratio. 
funny that. And so what's interesting is, you know, I don't think Google is solely to blame to, to the slowdown that's happened in tech, but they certainly, I think, are solely to blame because I don't think they've managed it well, which is another lesson for you, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, leaders around the world, is when you have to downshift, the people that are leaving, the people that are staying are watching you, how you treated the people that are leaving. Absolutely. And if you're abrupt, and you're not as compassionate as you can be. You don't owe them two years of severance, but if you're abrupt and not compassionate, then the people who are leaving are saying, so I'm a survivor this time, but that's the way this is gonna roll here. Yeah. And it's in the back of their mind. It's said that when you lay off a person, there's an opportunity to lose one quarter of a person throughout your company if you do it in a harsh way. Think mm -hmm. about that. You lay off one person and you could lose up to a quarter of every person in the company who watched that. In other words, every person, your stock falls with them 25% mm -hmm. and they think about, you know what? Gosh, if I hear things are that much tougher, maybe it's time for me to look around. And you know what? It's not the lazy. It's not the zombies that are just there collecting a paycheck. It's the top 30%. That's the ones you have to worry about. Because they're like, I know where my value is. I know what I can do. I, you know. I'm gonna go do it somewhere else. Yeah, you, at a certain point you get you get sick of it, and I think that in in a lot of cases it's not necessarily what happens to the company because they like the market downturns they can't really control that, but it's also in how you communicate the changes and how they react to it is where people are really gonna see it because if a company like you're losing money or you're, it has a bad quarter or something like that, it's like obviously it's on the news, everyone knows it. But then also you kind of got to, okay, now we got to tighten up the belt a little bit. But if, if it's just slashing people and then continuing as business as usual, mm -hmm. then it's definitely a bad taste for the people that are left because it's like, well, what makes me think that I'm not next up on the chopping block? And think about this. Google is coming up on 25 years old. I think yes. it's coming up on its 25-year anniversary. Um, and, oh, by the way, I have, a, I have a funny Google startup story. Okay. Very funny. <laughs> so a individual I know at a... East Coast-based, um, uh, I'll say it, Bessemer, mm -hmm. Bessemer Venture Capital mm -hmm. is on the East Coast. And the guy from Bessemer comes and meets a woman who says, I got two Google, I got two engineers in my garage that want to talk to venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. And this particular venture capitalist was over visiting with this woman at her yep. home. It was just a social meeting because they're in, they weren't dating or anything. It was just literally business social meeting. Hey, drop by the house, meet me. She goes, in my garage, I got these two engineers working. Mm -hmm. Wow, really? What do they want? Well, they want some investment money. That's what all the engineers want. Well, what are they doing? Well, they think that the internet is going to be so complicated that, we, that search and finding things is going to be what's important. Is it a commerce company? No. Well, what is it? They believe that search will be the thing that helps you find everything on, on the internet, and they're in my garage working on it, and they want investment. And it is documented that he said the following. Look, I'm going to finish my coffee, and is there any way that I can get from your kitchen to my car without going anywhere near your garage? True story. <laughs> so... It was that close for Bessemer Venture Capital. Isn't that great? That's, that must be How can I get from your kitchen this coffee and my car without going anywhere near your garage? He should have he swung by the garage. He should have swung by the garage, yeah. exactly. But for 25 years, since that time, Google's been the place to be. You know what's interesting? 
Take a look. If you've been at Google for 20 years and you graduated at 26 years old from Stanford and you've been there 20 years, you're 46. So now you're in midlife. Your kids are probably 10, 15 years old now. Okay, here we go. And it is a fact that Googlers, as they call themselves, ran their own surveys. And there's a lot of them that feel that they are suffering from mental health issues in the equivalent of a pre-PTSD because they're very worried about the future and here that people are being laid off that says, do no evil and all the things that Google stood for. There is a quote that said, many of us are having mental health issues and we're coming to the realization we were expendable all mm -hmm. along. So much for the big dream in the startup. 20 years later, we were expendable all along. Well, you know what? Economies will ebb and flow, things will happen, but you know, Google's just doing it wrong and now, it's actually at greater risk, you know, stock price aside, they're at greater risk of, of losing people, which I think was, um, it's kind of sad because mm -hmm. it's like, a, a, you know, Google is all grown up. Now they're your dad. Yep. No, I, I think the other part, too, is the, dif the difference between perks and benefits. Because a lot of perks, especially in Silicon Valley, where you have the ping pong, you have the sna unlimited snack bar, you have the uh, laundry pickup and whatever, what happens. Bring your dog to work. Exactly. You have a lot of perks. But in reality, there's, there's also benefits. Obviously, 401k, health insurance, uh, equity, or anything like that. So I think that in Silicon Valley, especially the last 20 years, what we've seen in terms of the boom of the tech economy, that the perks and the benefits have kind of blended together, where you think that just because you work there, you, you're, you have a right to these perks, when in reality, they're, they're just perks. It's like you, they're additional there. But if you then start removing them, that's where you can start seeing some issues with a lot of the people, and I think that's what we're seeing a lot of happening right now. You know, Kellyanne, let's see if you can find something. Patrick but David talked about, um, about charities about a month ago, and he talked about the cycle that charities go through with mega donors. And level one was appreciation. And then level two, it got down, anyway, to, to save you all the journey, level one was appreciation, and then it got to expectation, and then it got to entitlement and resentment. Mm -hmm. That you start out with something good, and then they expected you to always be a donor, then they felt entitled to your support. I'm working so hard, they felt entitled to your support. And finally, at the end, there was actually tension in the relationship. Yep. And that this is the same thing that happens with welfare recipients and the same thing that happens with trust fund babies about their feeling about the law firm and the stewards that are running the trusts because mom and dad have long passed away. Now you're a trust fund baby. You're one of the Kennedys. You're one of the DuPonts. And by the way, look at the, the drug use and the responsibility no. among a lot of the Kennedy kids. I'm not talking about RFK Jr., who I have a lot of respect for. That's first generation. But you look at the Kennedy kids that were his kids and others, not a lot of responsibilities. And the DuPont family was famous for just grandkids out of frickin' control, grandkids mm -hmm. of the Scion, and the kids were the first generation. And you, have ex you, you go from appreciation to expectation all the way down to resentment. It's like five stages. Yep. And it's like, if you know, if no, if, that just shows you, if you don't have purpose, your human heart turns dark. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the Bible was correct about all these things about if a man has purpose or a man works hard, he will find great pleasure in his work. You know, yep. it's, it's kind of amazing that it's true. And if a man does nothing, you know, he ultimately has a warped perspective. And so I think that's what happens with perks. What starts out is some things you're trying to do. Hey, look, we want you working here. We want you working the hours. But 
We're going to help you with dry cleaning. We're going to have chefs in here. Mm -hmm. Cafeteria doesn't close at 2 o'clock. Come down anytime. Yep. We're going to have these um, sleeping pods where you can read a book and sleep in these egg ch chairs and have some peace and quiet. Take a real time out and break. Bring your dog to work, you know. There's all these yeah. services they had. Suddenly, everyone felt entitled to everything. <clears throat> Company grows up, trims the expenses, and it's like, screw you. I'm entitled. Yeah, yeah well, go down the street, see if you can find it. Mm -hmm. Instead, they go down the street and they find another ten grand a year, and they're gone. Yep. No, it's it's, uh, it's definitely it's definitely an interesting cycle, and I think that mm -hmm. that's where they're getting a little bit confused. But then to to also not completely shift blame off of Google, a lot of it goes down to how you communicate it too. If it's like, hey, we're losing yeah. money, we're trying to keep as many people as possible, we're trying to do great work, but some of that comes with sacrifices, and in this case, we're sacrificing dry cleaning service. I think that a lot of people would be like understanding and like, okay, I see what you're saying, as opposed to just slashing. Yeah, and, and by the way, Google is not bed, bath, and beyond profitable, right? No, it's like, exactly. you know, and, or should I say bed, bath, and beyond existence. Mm -hmm. um, no, 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 but Google's gonna be around, but it's just, it's, it's lessons for all of us on how you treat new things. Now, since we're talking about Google, we were talking about venture, we were talking about, um, you know, founders. Interesting thing, article came up with a chart on M&A, and we'll move on to M&A here. Uh, Kellyanne, we have a chart. Take a look at this, this chart. Proof of life. It's like we're on a mission to Mars. The total value of the US M&A deals rose in the second quarter. Now, this is called trying to find good news in the middle of bad news, because take a look. 2023 has not been good. It's been far lower than 21 and 22, 22 although at the end of 22, and so they're showing the Q2 is up, but look where it was. It was almost, it was almost $800 billion in Q3 of 21. Mm -hmm. In Q3 of 21, by the way, there was a pandemic that was in full power at that time. Yeah. And then you take a look at what happened there in 22. So what it's basically saying is, this is interesting. Why are deals starting to pick up? Now, we're not talking getting back to 21 levels, not by a long stretch, or even the first half of 22. We're just saying that there's a little bit of tick up. So why are people getting excited about that? Um, they're getting excited about that because when there are deals to be made, there's one of two things happening. People are buying um, highly valued assets before they're too highly valued or B, they're rolling up valuable things, they're rolling up useful things in a roll-up strategy, but they're not necessarily as valuable as they once were. In other words, things you could use that are great companies, like a tuck-in acquisition, are on sale, or, hey, before Uber gets too expensive, let's buy it, like before the IPO, and there were people that talked about that um, back in the day. And so what they're talking about here, what was interesting is, um, there are there are there are a couple large firms that were talking about this when you dug this up. Yep. No. Absolutely. I think um, it's it's interesting to see of how these are coming up and how it's adjusting. But like you're saying, it, it's far from where from where it was. So I think that um, it's going to be interesting to see how this bounces back. How correlated is this with interest rates? Uh, well, it it is. It is and it isn't. So it is for the small. So. Some private equity firms can run deals on 100% cash that they're sitting on. Any PE firm that gets into roll-up, they're probably gonna have what's called turns. Turns is um, 
uh, a level of debt equal to one times that company's profitability. So they may turn two turns of debt. In other words, take two years of profitability and get that much debt. Mm -hmm. In other words, the debt I have could, in theory, be paid off with the current profitability in less than two years. Yep. Especially with a little bit of growth. Okay. So they normally use debt and cash because they get a higher IRR because they're using less of the cash to pay off the interest and things, and it, it makes things work. So interest rates, if you're really looking to put a lot of debt on something, it has an impact. If you're looking for you know, average amount of debt, you have a software company that's still gonna be growing 15% a year, well then shoot, you can handle that with six, 7% you know, uh, commercial bank debt. You, know, you, you can do that. So interest rates are part of it, but what's interesting is PE is sitting on a ton of money and there's not a lot of targets out there. It's, it's like not having enough houses for sale so that there's enough of a selection and you can get people competing on price and things. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're just not finding a lot of great businesses for sale, but those that they are finding that are big enough and are, that are growing that they want if someone wants to grab it before it gets too valuable or it's still a good little company that they want to grab and tuck in because they can get it on sale, that is what's happening right now. Got it. And William Blair, you know, um, a leader in the space, said they've seen a 20% increase in, um, in deals, number of deals so close, 23 versus 22. Uh, that's significant. That's deal count. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes in Q4 and then rolling into uh, next year as well. You know, it's a cloud security firm just last week bought for $2.45 billion. So we're not talking about, you know, a startup bought for $100 million or <clears throat> a tuck-in technology company that Meta buys for $200 million. And you don't even hear about them because they're, they're, they're so below radar. Yep. Uh, these, were, these were meaningful, meaningful things. So what does it mean for you? What it means for you is if, if, if your company is big enough and you're looking at tuck-in acquisitions across town or across your industry, you can probably find PE firms and bankers that can help you facilitate that. And if you are able to be right now strengthened, like I keep saying, running efficiently, strengthening yourself, driving hard, you could be in the position to be the one that picks up something that's on sale, whether that's just for a customer list, a little bit of technology, what you offer and what they sell for, that's not your fault. If that's down, that's your opportunity. And so I, I think that's very much where it is. And if you've been managing to run your profitability at a certain level, don't be a surprise. You get a knock at the door, someone may be interested in you because they're like, if you can make it in this economy, imagine what you can do inside our company or if I invest a little bit more into you. No, for And sure. so that's, that's also the strong side of it. Yeah. Ooh, was that thunder? It sounded like it. We have got thunder out here. So <laughs> God is showing up in yeah. South Florida. Welcome to Florida. For sure, for sure. It's, so um, where next? Do we have, I think I've seen the chat rolling here. We got a couple questions? We do. So let's go to the audience. I love questions from the audience. Our first one is about uh, hiring decisions. Uh, Tom, uh, currently re uh, recently launched my startup, I'm looking to hire for B2B sales, uh, uh, sales manager. Um, I have a very close friend who's looking for a job but has no s sales experience. He's very good in communication, has a good attitude. Um, and would be a lot cheaper than this other option who is a uh, experienced sales rep, has global reach, um, way older than, than my friend, and, but maybe not as hungry to dedicate longer hours if needed. 
who should I go with? Okay, so fantastic, great question. So medium-sized business, looking for a head of business development, a head of sales. Option one, a lot of experience is going to want a higher base salary. Option two, enthusiasm, committed, willing, but not a lot of experience left. What's really interesting about that is if you have time to personally mentor and you as a CEO come from the business development side, I might lean this way. But if you as a CEO come from the product side or the technology side, well, who's really going to mentor up somebody even with the best of attitudes and enthusiasm? You probably need to lean toward experience so that you bring good technical selling skills, business development skills in, and then you inoculate them with all your product knowledge and what differentiates you. And then as a leader, you don't let them discount too much. Do you see the balance there you got to take? So really part of it comes down to who are you in this equation? You as a leader, can you lift up with mentoring sales skills or are you more the product guy that says, hey, I just need someone to run my sales organization. I know what my product does. I'm going to be great on the phone with major accounts because I'm the product guy and I'm the founder. Let me get the founder in the room. Let's talk about this. I'm that guy. I'm going to be there for you. So. You choose experience or here. You really have to look at who you are and where you are at this time. But that said, if you're flipping a coin, I always lean toward bringing experience in the room that is demonstrating to me that they can fit culturally with my team. Because if I just bring in culture and I have to train on skills and everything, early stage companies, you don't always have the luxury of time. Mm -hmm. If you're more mid-stage and looking to bring in another sales leader and you can you know, spread some time out, get some cross-mentoring, you can afford to do that. But in earlier stage, I always go for experience, but you don't necessarily have to pay the guy with 30 years of experience top dollar um, you may be able to use stock options or find a candidate that's more in the middle. Um, that's, that's what the BizDoc would do if it was my company. And I came from, remember, I come from BizDev and sales with a lot of product experience on top of it. So when I got out of college, I went to IBM sales school, I got my business development chops, all of that there, then I went into products. So when I was in my early 30s, people look at me and they saw a BizDev and a, and a product definition specialist. So I was a bit of a unicorn and guess what? That's how I got to join some really cool places and that's how I got to go drive because I was sales, marketing, and I had the experience. Get the technical skills. Yeah, Add those. For sure. And, and like, like you said too, there's always a cost associated. Either it's time or it's money. So what are you more willing to spend? And speed. Yeah. Time, speed, money. Which two can you afford to pick? Yep. Great question. We've got another one that's actually about meetings. Um, in regards to my meetings, I want to improve them. On a recent podcast, you spoke about uh, start with a number and end with a date. How do I use this to improve my meetings? You know, by improving your meetings, you can improve how you hold people accountable. And that comes out of a book, I believe it was the Amazon Way. Not the, there's two great books that were written on Amazon. One was the Amazon Way, one was the Everything Store. I'm no, I'm certain it was the Amazon way because the author of the Amazon way was the individual that talked about getting dressed down by Jeff Bezos in a meeting where he's brand new to Amazon. Here's the story. Brand new to Amazon. 
He's in Jeff's big meeting where they talk about everything in Amazon. You write up a memo, it goes in there. Everybody reads the memo for about 20 minutes, then Jeff starts the meeting. And you better be ready, you better be crisp, you better be sharp. And he asks Bezos, you know, is he, asks this individual question. Uh, how many affiliate stores do we have right now? Because they had the Amazon Direct, Amazon Warehouse. How many of these affiliate stores do we have? And they said, well, um, you know, I've been reaching out to people and doing a few things this week, and we got a few things we're going to spin up together. And he says, stop. How many stores do we have this week, and how many will we have this time next week? Well, I'm trying to explain that to you. Bup, 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 bup. And Bezos said, stop. That answer starts with a number and ends with a date. And apparently that was the tension there. And afterwards the guy says, gosh, am I about to get fired in my second week? No, we think Jeff likes you. Just when you're asked a question and you're at this meeting, he knows you're doing all those things with your team. Do not bring all of that word salad into this meeting. Jeff, I just got here, been here for two weeks. We have 26 of them. I want to double that by this time next week now that I'm in the chair. Boom. Done. That's what he wants to hear. Jeff's not going to say, how are you going to do that? He hired the guy to do that. He doesn't want your diary of all the crap you're working on. How to make yourself better in meetings? Here's my advice. Don't let people put puffery of describing their busyness in the answer. Get the effing answer and get a commitment from them. That is how you build strong people. How many was it this week? How many are you going to have next week? And if the boss wants to bridge the meeting and say, well, why was that? Tell me more. Talk about your blockers. Talk short. Talk about that you're doing something about it. But that is how you can be more effective in meetings because it instills accountability in everybody. That is how I think everybody from a team of three to a team of 300 can be better leaders as CEOs is make meetings as short as possible and insist that when people give you reports, that answer starts with a number and ends with a date. And we've started with a lot of numbers and we've ended with a lot of dates. And I think that's what we got this week. Thank you for your questions. Love to see more questions and thoughts about what he wants to cover. We have a great CEO that we're bringing on the next episode. I won't spoil it, but watch the Twitter post and watch the post that will come in before uh, live. It will be um, next Monday, Monday. <laughs> excuse me, next Monday, 1130 Eastern Time. It'll be up there. Great CEO interview. I think you're going to like this guy talking about a lot of pitfalls he went through. Lessons for you in the middle of it. And so until next time, I'm Tom Ellsworth I'm with Kai. Kai. And Kellyanne, the Swiss Army Knife, saying thank you for being here, and I hope I left you better than I found you.